Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. June 25th, 2023, episode 223, Smokey. You know, for me, when I hear that music, it kind of leads me into, this is another episode of the Beekeeper's Corner. I could start this episode with like, bunk, 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 is this thing on? Testing, testing. Oh yeah, just checking things are in order. I welcome everyone into the corner. The Beekeeper's Corner, a little part of the world where we talk about keeping bees. Let's see, uh, March 5th, that's the date of the last episode, and yes, so sorry it has been a while. I've had it in my mind these last couple of weeks to put a show out and prove that I did not fall off a cliff, but alas, I've been heads down on the pile of projects that are going on here uh, around the house and with the bees, and I'll talk about that later in the show. As to what's going on, it's kind of business as usual for a busy spring as we cross into summer. It's been an odd spring in the context of usually spring is wet and it rains a lot. We've had no rain. We've had just a little shower maybe for 15-20 minutes here or there. No rain to speak of since, I want to say March, since last time we talked, which has really kind of been an odd thing to consider because observationally one thing I notice is the plants were different this year if you see a tree in bloom it kind of looks okay but this year because we've had no rain some of the trees looked astonishingly good like the profile of the plants changed that's just one thing that looked different to me this year oh and recently we had smogageddon for a week straight after the smoke from the wildfires of Canada had taken over our atmosphere. And I'll talk about that in the show. And I think that and a few other things are a good place to catch up. So let me tell you what I have in store for the episode. First things first, longtime listeners probably want to know about my first year experiment, which is going on with treatment free. What happened with the overwintering and what observations came with this first year of experience? I'm going to spend a moment reflecting on the smoke event that I just talked about and make sure we get a record of the unique experience for posterity and talk about a couple observations. Round table number three, an introduction to a term that correlates to beekeeping. For round table four, I'm going to pull out nuggets of wisdom gleaned from last year's EAS. Round table five, planning to share some quick thoughts about how dry the spring has been and expand on what I just talked about a little bit. And as for the rest of the show, well, since it's been a while since I've been with you, I'm just going to rattle off a whole bunch of things that have been going on around here and get you caught up. Uh, To the end of the episode, I'm going to share what's come this summer, as well as an update from the management mentoring program is in that. Um, hmm. Of course, I'm going to end with the local hive report. And if you have the fortitude to stay with me through all of that, then I think maybe you've missed me and you'll plan to hang out to the end. Why don't we get started? Roundtable number one, I call this one treatment-free winter assessment. What can I say? So far, it's been pretty good. 
As a quick aside and to get you in context of what's going on, especially if you're new, this is the first year summation of going treatment free. And if you're not following the program, you probably don't know that. There was a concerted effort to switch over from 2022 and try something that was planned for a couple of years. My friend in beekeeping, Bob Kloss and I were like Mutt and Jeff, had been working on the potential to go treatment free. It started with Bob's collection of good bees. So not only did we both rear queens from bees that overwintered in our own stock to try and improve local quality bees, Bob also went on a quest over the last six, eight years to collect anything that he could from bee trees, trees in nature, things that survived that had feral genetic stock. We were finally convinced that if we were ever going to pull this off together, it was time for me to join in the fold. And in 2022, after our queen rearing and replacing pretty much all the queens in the apiary in my yard, I did not treat at all for 2022. So how did that make out? Well, 10 out of 18. And if I judge that success rate, my typical success rate, treating and monitoring and so on, is somewhere between 60 and 75% every year. At least that's what I recollect off the top of my head. So to get more than 50% through, and believe me, I was nervous and absolutely no experience with this and really wondered whether it was a colossal mistake for 2022. And I have to say, I was at 75% right until the end of spring and then lost one or two colonies right at the end. But if I think about that, look at the report card. Over 50% with 100% of not treating. That's a pretty good trade-off in my estimation, but I'm going to give a caveat that towards the end of this, I want to talk about what I think also plays into the factor of anybody who could say, hmm, that's interesting, I might want to try this. So let me talk about the actual colonies. What did they look like coming out? Because if you follow the biology of the Varroa mite, they grow during the summertime, and at peak population, they overwhelm the colonies because their rate of reproduction is higher than the bees. That would mean that you should experience a compromise in the winter bees. And you would anticipate that if colonies survive, it's not one thing for them to survive, but to survive in a robust manner. Yeah, some colonies can eke their way through even after having been hammered in the fall from varroa mites. But really, for this program to be a success, they need to come out of winter with a decent colony makeup and no signs of disease come springtime. Now, given we're 10 days away from summer, I think I can make a fair assessment at this point of how the bees looked in the spring. I would describe them as robust, strong colonies, no weaklings. The fact of the matter is I had to split early in order to prevent everything from swarming away. And given all the work we did at creating this stock, 
I really wanted to do my best to keep anything from swarming. Now I wondered, again, having no experience, but learning in my first year, how was it going to be? Were all these colonies going to come out as compromised? And I've had colonies that have varroa mite impacts and they made it through the winter and then dealt with European foul brood and parasitic mite syndrome and some of that other stuff in previous years if you go back and listen through the catalog. No spring disease, massive colonies, and when I say robust or uh, strong colonies, let me explain what I mean by that, by my definition. A colony coming out of winter should start right at the beginning of forage at building its population. And when it has its population, it can go out and seek forage, load in the pollen, load in the nectar, and produce its summer workforce, spring-summer workforce. Saw that in spades. Now, the other thing that a colony needs, and their whole goal in life is to reproduce during the nectar season, is drones. And I saw a massive amount of drones in all my colonies, which means... If they're producing drones and loading in on resources, that's a robust colony. They were bursting at the seams when I made splits. I split early because they were so full that they would have certainly swarmed all spring long. So, yeah, not a bad way to go. Now, I think about, and now I'm going to reflect or come back to that pin that I virtually put in there. How would this work for anybody in the general sense? One thing to note is 18 colonies. That's a lot of beehives for a normal person. It certainly is for me, especially since I work a day job and have 10,000 other things going on on the weekends. It's the max at what I can stand. But if anybody is going to do treatment free, I will say this emphatically over and over again. You really need to have about 20 colonies. What that affords is the amount of resources to regenerate losses. And what I see by people who do this, just casually observing, is that they always have a lot of colonies. It's part of the equation of being treatment-free. Maybe that's a gross generalization, and I don't mean to force that on anybody that's a treatment-free beekeeper already, but on the whole, the ones that I talk to, that is something that's pretty consistent. In order to recover what was lost and to continue to rebuild and restore the good stock that you come through, you're going to reproduce the survivors and just keep splitting and doing whatever. Yeah, that was terrible. Whatever. <laughs> Sorry. I'm in my headspace, so you'll just have to forgive me. I'm kind of just going with the flow here as I talk about this and reflect on it. If I think about it from my operation, just specifically as to what I did, it was absolutely perfect because most of the time, any of the colonies that made through, I had to knock them back so that they wouldn't swarm away. And I physically just split them in half. And so with a near, it was over 50%, but I had 50% of the equipment that I had to put back into service. And I had a couple extras that I put out into a 
certain yards and now I'm to 20 colonies. It worked out perfectly. I don't know if it was karma and it was supposed to be this way or what. I now have so many full-size colonies and I should state that some of those were six over six polystyrene hives, some were six over sixes, some were eight over eights, you know, and it seemed like I had two eight over eight polystyrene hive bee boxes go through winter. One survived, one did not. So when I needed to split it, I just took half of the one that survived and put it in the other half that failed. And the same thing somehow automatically happened for my six over six polystyrene nukes. So in the end, uh, treatment free year one, so far so good. Now I'm going to talk about drones later and how that potentially has the impact for Varroa mites. And I'm also going to talk about the fact that I'm not doing a queen rearing program this season, which has me nervous. Those two things could be a one-two punch that are going to make 2024 a bad round for us. But you know what? Live vicariously, live the life, live the moment and see how it happens. I'm at the point in my beekeeping tenure that I know even if I lost 75% with the 25% that made it through, I could rebuild the entire operation and maybe even go down to fewer hives, which would not be a terrible idea. But you know, in the end, I feel like strong colonies, no treatments, no spring disease, and everything is good to go. Uh, the only thing I regret is that I'm not monitoring yet. I haven't had the opportunity to go out there and uh, monitor and see where the mites were. So part of this program, both Bob and I had said this, is that we really wanted to monitor the mites and just see what kind of mite loads these bees are carrying and whether they're doing a good job with that. I think I'm going to have to put that on the agenda. But when you hear what I have going on in one of the later segments, you'll understand why it just have been kind of watching the bees this spring, not doing a lot with them. And it's going to be that way for this year. It's one of these rebuilding years for me in my life itself. And um, yeah, the bees have just kind of taken hobbyist view. Not so strong on that. So anyway, uh, that's what happened. And I'm okay with the outcome. We'll see how this plays out over a couple of years. It's the long game, not the short game. But in the first chapter of it, not a bad outcome. I'm okay with it. Yeah, I felt like I was rambling there. So let's go to roundtable number two. Call this one Smoky. It's been an interesting seven to ten days when looking back on this past week. Sometimes a region of the country will experience a side effect of a large event that has taken place in some other area. In this case, the Mid-Atlantic has been overrun with smoky conditions as a result of fires taking place in Canada. As it is of certain areas of the world, say the West Coast for the U.S. example, some regions are prone to having wildfires. And those who are downstream are probably accustomed to dealing with smoking conditions now and again. What is not typical is smog enveloping our region. 
from the unprecedented fires in British Columbia and Alberta, Canada. And I guess to some extent I heard it was in Nova Scotia, Quebec, and Ontario. Now, I remember times when we had the smell of smoke conditions and haze from past events that occurred somewhere to our west. But this was an all-out smog, thick, soupy smoke, take the air from your lungs malaise, that turned our skies into an ominous yellow-orange and had the eerily oppression of some doomsday event. Now, I describe it that way because people were genuinely impacted and, well, it was inescapable for all. The air smelled of acrid smoke and the sun was blotted out by an unnerving dull orange orb in the sky. Now, after considering how it looked to us for a week-long stretch, consider how it looked to the birds and the bees. It was like some dystopian apocalypse novel. Something seemed a bit off for a few days. Both Sharon and I noticed one day in particular that seemed to freak the birds out in our region. We were sitting down eating dinner and she had a moment of awareness about what was going on just outside our windows. She was facing the outside from her spot at the table and she remarked to me that the birds were winging out flittering nervously to and fro and very low to the ground in an almost manic cadence. Now what was unusual is that they were two to three times more active than normal and operating in the space between the treetops and the ground. As she started to describe what she was seeing it prompted me to tell her about my odd drive home from work. In the time it took me to navigate home from Princeton, I hit almost two birds darting across the road. And I saw at least two or three blue jays, robins, cardinals, and catbirds cross my path. I also saw three goldfinches and about a dozen other birds. It was like driving through one of those cages where you go into a bird sanctuary at a zoo. It was not hard to see that just about Every hundred yards or something, something flicked outside the window to your peripheral in the car or across the front windshield. It was so apparent that it struck me as odd. About halfway through, I started to watch for it and noticed the phenomenon all the way home. So we humans took notice, and of course the birds were different, but what about the bees? If I think about it online, there were a smattering of discussions going on, of course, because everybody was talking about the smoke. In the weeks leading up, at our home, I will report, of course, as I just talked about in the opening, that we saw bees flying locally. And in these last few weeks, there's just been this audible hum coming from our apiary on our property, and I mean that in a literal sense. This is a Kevin moment. A few years back, we moved our bees to a spot off of the back of the garage. They're nestled in a wooded section of our property up on a hill. It's not ideal at all for the sun, but the bees have settled in well there, and I've come to learn that full shade in the woods, it's not going to stop you from placing bees there they've actually done quite well in the location. 
One interesting dynamic of our yard is that the leaves on the trees serve to carry the sound. In spring, when the leaves are not blossomed yet, they're all little greeny buds, the bees fly forward of the apiary to the blue sky over our driveway. But when the canopy fills in and the leaves are fully developed, they change. They fly straight up to the sky above the bee yard. You could physically, physically see the sun glinting off the bees as they exit the treetops to go out and forage for wherever they're going. As they do this, the buzzing sound of the bees creates an audible thrum. And when standing in the driveway, you can discern the audible hum of a dozen colonies in operation. If you've ever heard the sound of a swarm leaving, it kind of sounds like that, but with the volume turned down just a touch. In some respects, I can tell good foraging days because they take it up a notch and I really have to walk up there every once in a while to see if a swarm is issuing because the resonance has that same sound. And alas, it always just turns out to be the massive workforce of a dozen hives. I liken it to the sound of a freeway nearby during rush hour. But when the smoke came to town, in the last 7 to 10 days, it's been oddly quiet on our property. What had been a constant thrum out and back of our garage was discernibly quiet. So much so that I took a moment to walk up into the bee yard on days that I worked from home in the smoke and simply just found the bees hanging out with very little flight going on. In the course of operating hives, it's pretty typical to have bee boxes sitting around in places where things collect. On those days when I went out and walked around, I happened to make some changes in the previous days before the smoke arrived. And I had some boxes sitting in a cart, and I also had some on the back table and one in the breezeway. I always say that things are in a constant state of taking things out and putting them away, right? As it is with the beekeeping season, I had a few 6 over 6 polystyrene hives also sitting out with comb in them in case an errant swarm would come by. While you could not hear the bees flying up and out of the apiary as customary for this time of year, like the birds flittering around, our bees were supremely interested in any of the bee equipment close to the ground. At one point, I had to pull the roof off of a bait hive to see if a colony moved in. This takes a moment. To describe what was inside, it's just old, drawn comb. That's what I put out for a bait hive. Dry. No honey, no pollen, just comb. I didn't... Earlier in the year, when I was trying to lure any potential swarms that were going to go, I sprayed it with Swarm Commander. I hadn't done that since, like, April. When I pulled the roof off to see if a colony had moved in, a swarm, I really was expecting to see a colony. That's how many bees were at the entrance. But what ended up happening is this full contingent of bees came pouring out of the top in a behavior like, oh, the jig is up. 
It was the oddest thing, and reflecting back, I have to speculate that maybe those bees were taking shelter in there. Isn't that kind of cool? That's the end of the Kevin moment. Just that whole sound thing and the dynamic of seeing the bees during the smoke event. This brings me to the observation that Bob Kloss and I had when discussing things over a call during the height of this smoke-laden window that things really must have confused the bees. Of course, that had to be the case. The most obvious summation from a layperson's point of view is, well, we smoked the hives to make entry. That week, no need. <laughs> the entire atmosphere was smoked. I actually wondered if you had had to have light a smoker to make entry to a hive. The smoke was physically present in the air. By that, I mean it tasted like smoke. It smelled completely of smoke, and it was like being at a cookout, you know, that phenomenon where no matter where you placed your folding chair, the wind changes and the darn smoke follows you. I found bees very quiet and doing nothing that week. I saw some hives with clumps of bees at the entrance. Unlike bearding, they were two to three inches deep just sitting on the landing board. And I noticed they were ever so slightly fanning. It almost seemed to me like the outer bees were creating some sort of envelope to keep the smoke out. I have no proof of that. It was just what I conjured up when I witnessed what I was looking at. You know, it's kind of like when you walk into some stores and they have that blower going to keep the gust of cold air from coming in every time the auto doors open. All the bees were just hanging out on the porch. There were some errant adventurous bees flying low in, in and around the property checking out the stuff that was laying around but that's about it and I can only imagine that it was near impossible for the bees to smell anything in their tasks to locate food sources and I wonder if the visual acuity was lowered due to the thick haze in the air. Even as bees ventured out, they probably could only find something if they had visited it before and somehow, through the smog, blundered into the food source by memory. At least that's what my mind was thinking as this whole thing was going on. Now the last observation that I'll share is the sound around the garage. Each time I went back out to go to the garage, I could hear bees buzzing. I don't mean the thrum, I mean... Other than the birds flittering around, it was odd in that time frame how each individual flying bee sounded in those conditions. Imagine if you're in your house and a bee gets in and it's buzzing on the window. We beekeepers know the sound. We're attuned to it. You know, when you walk in with your bee suit on and there was a bee on the back. It was kind of like that on steroids around my garage. Each individual bee flittering around the equipment laying around made the sound of several bees with just one set of wings. It was really odd. I would venture that what we witnessed happens to bees that are resident in areas where there are wildfires, again thinking about out west. This, however, was on a grandiose scale. When you take into consideration that every single colony from New York City to Philadelphia being conservative in the estimate, 
and then afar to the mid-Atlantic region of anybody who went through this had these conditions during the stretch. It makes me wonder, is it anything like the butterfly effect? Is there any lasting effect that is going to take place pointing back to that one week where large swaths of the East Coast was blanketed by thick acrid smoke? Imagine, if you will, that some crops that farmers had were right at the peak of being pollinated at that point, and that week was a no-go. Now, I guess this kind of happens in nature when you have, like, rain for a straight week and bees can't go out. But it's interesting to think about what was the impact of that for the week. It's an odd footnote to have witnessed this, and it's one of the main reasons why I added it here in the show. If you lived it too, then you have some recollection that expands on the experience, and I wouldn't mind hearing any observations that I didn't clue in on. And if you worked bees that day, any of those days, and saw anything interesting, I'd love to hear what your experience was. Write me an email, kevin at bkcorner.org. I want to thank, in the case of our bees, that old adage that the bees were behaving like the forest was on fire is truly what they lived through last week. And the good thing for them is that the fire is nowhere in sight, and this week they have returned to their regularly scheduled program. Roundtable number three, it's that way. I kind of know where that is. Think of that statement, if you have ever been someplace unfamiliar and thought to yourself while trying to get to somewhere, then you have some innate sense of direction as to which way to go. If you were driving somewhere in New Jersey, say someplace in another part of the state, and someone said, let's go to the shore, would you look out your windshield and think, I have to go that way if I want to go to the shore? That premise the one that you have an inkling is what this roundtable is about. If you've been a beekeeper for any appreciable amount of time, you have, of course, heard of the Waggle Dance. Think of this in the moment, right here, right now. How does it work? A bee gets direction data from another bee, and based on what Carl von Frisch told us, they head out the front entrance of the hive and follow the instructions to the food source. It's a hard and fast thing. B experiences dance, B follows instruction, B gets to a reward. Now let this bake your noodle. Take B of origin hive and place said B out in the landscape away from the original location after having experienced a waggle dance from the other place. B leaves from the foreign location and B proceeds to fly to forage. There's something wrong with this picture is the direction from which it leaves is not where the waggle dance occurred and that doesn't work with what we learned from Mr. Von Frisch. If we're to understand the dance language of the waggle dance, there's a certain underlying premise that the honeybee is getting instructions to the forage source from the point of origin, which is their beehive. It really shouldn't work if you took the bee and moved it to some other location and set it free so that it could go to the forage site because, duh, it's not the hive. 
So what if there's something we're missing? Some sort of encoded instruction that we never picked up on because researchers have found that if they just do this, take a forager bee and move it to another location, it can actually still find its way to forage. In a study published in the Proceedings of Natural Academy of Sciences entitled Honeybees in Fur Source Location from Dances of Returning Foragers, researchers have examined the dance language and the bees' ability to navigate with a fresh new look. They took bees and moved them hundreds of meters from where the search would ordinarily begin, meaning the origin hive, and the recruits were able to find the bounty. All of this with assurances that the bee had never flown to the route previously and had no stored memory of a previously visited location. They tracked the flights of the displaced recruits with a harmonic radar. It said, quote, This technique has been successfully used to provide symbolic information transfer in the waggle dance. The recruits started not only at the hive entrance, meaning in the control, but in the catch and release design, also at other sites within the explored area around the hive, end quote. So let's consider some of the elements of this study. The displaced recruit had not previously found food at the dance location, but given they were in the class of foragers, it's possible that they had imprinted landmarks in the general vicinity of where food was. Kevin moment. I want you to go down three blocks and you're gonna turn right at the laundromat. You're gonna go three more blocks, cross over some railroad tracks, and then you're gonna make a right on Wilson Boulevard. End of Kevin moment. When you hear that phrase, imprinted landmarks, that's kind of what I'm conjuring up. But we all know that honeybees can't read signs and don't have labels for turn right at the oak tree, head towards the big mountain, and all those other things. There's an inference in the study evaluations that seem to infer that familiarity with the location has something to do with the success of the release experiment. Quote, in short, displaced recruits released in familiar territory were almost as likely to make at least one run toward F in the course, F being some point of origin in the study, on their search as recruits were released at the hive, while recruits unfamiliar with the release territory rarely or never made such runs, end quote. In the case of that statement, F was the intended target for forage, if that's not evident. So in order to be successful, the forager had to have some imprint of the landscape, but still, we remember no landmarks could be communicated in the dance language. The study did not infer that a bee released in the place away from the hive was successful in finding forage. It noted that on many occasions, however, the bee did head in the proper direction and seems to have a general sense of where it should go. They said, quote, Our results may be understood on the hypothesis of the bee brain. Like the vertebrae brain, constructs an Eleusidian cognitive map of the terrain in which the animal forages, end quote. 
I think a translation you could think of this is the example I opened with. If you were placed at some location on a map based on your general sense of direction, you would at least know, given instructions, which way to set out for. If I understood what they reported, it seems that the bees did better when going to locations toward the front of the hive versus those from the location from behind. So to say that more clearly in plain speak, if they got a forage instruction at the origin hive to go out front of the hive, say 20 degrees, several hundred yards, if they were taken and placed somewhere else in the field and let loose in the dark and then tried to find that, if it was out in front of the hive, they could find it. But if the original instruction was turn around and go to the back of the hive and go 20 degrees, they didn't seem to do as well. I'm not sure if that has to do with how the bees dance on the comb or something like that, but that's rather interesting notation. The demonstration that displaced recruits can find their way towards a goal from any location within the explored area requires us to reconsider what we know about the information that's communicated to the bees during the waggle dance. The researchers postulated that it could be a combination of things. Quote, one, bees remember hive-directed polar vectors within origins of familiar landscapes and food sources. Two, hive-directed polar vectors derived from subjects' dead reckoning location. Three, polar vectors directed toward previously experienced food sources from landmarks surrounding them. End quote. The researchers noted that forager bees frequently switched between dancing and dance following. And somewhere in that mix, the dance language is not only flight instruction, but part of the navigational conversation about where the food is and how to get there. As to it is that way, follow me, think of a point on a compass. In essence, the bees are kind of doing what sailors do. They are deriving a rum line. Rum is spelled R-H-U-M-B. Or room? I think it's not Roomba, like the vacuum, rum. <laughs> the term rum is kind of a short concept for rum line. Rum line. Rum can be illustratively thought of as a line or course on a single bearing and is most often associated with the maritime and reading a compass. It is taken to be a more generic concept of going to a destination by picking a point on a map and just heading in that direction. All I could say is, follow me, I know where I'm going. I'll have a link to the reference research in the show notes for this episode. Round table number four, I call this one sideways. This is one of those tips coming out of EAS from last year that's on the pile. As I'm working my way through, I wanted to talk about a presentation given by James Frazier. There was a technique he elaborated there that I wanted to cover. Now think about the conventional way as a beekeeper where you have two deeps and you want them, the bees, the colony, to build a honey super over top. Maybe you want them to draw a comb, or you want them to store honey in there. But the one thing you don't want is the queen to venture up north. Maybe the queen has ideas of building more brood up there, and you don't want brood in your honey supers. 
So how do you do that? The age-old thing is to put a queen excluder in between the boxes. Queen excluder built so that drones and workers can pass through, but not big enough in slots that the queen can pass through. Pretty straightforward thing, but there's a knock on queen excluders and a lot of people don't use them. They're called honey excluders. When you take a box of foundation and you put it over a double deep full of brood in a working colony, sometimes the bees are reticent to go up into the foundation and they just don't see it as workable space. Many times seasoned beekeepers will just put the box on and let it go that route. Or they acquiesce, they put a queen excluder on and the bees take their own sweet time in getting the objective met, whatever is going on north of the queen excluder. So riddle me this, how do you do it without using a queen excluder? The answer from James was, you use a queen excluder. <laughs> it was a very novel tip in a compromise kind of way. I'm going to tell you this tip and tell you why it's a benefit. Think of a queen excluder. It's the same dimension as a beehive box. It has a long side and a short side. And when you place it over a bee box, it covers end to end, side to side. What James is suggesting is a twist, literally. Take the queen excluder and turn it 90 degrees, centered over the box it's sitting over. Now, as you envision what I'm saying, you will probably come to terms that if you do that, the queen excluder will stick out beyond the boxes on both sides. Yep, that's true. However, you also know that the front and back of the box, the queen excluder is not going to cover the box below, and there will be a gap for the bees to come through unabated. You might ask yourself at this point, why would I do this? This is the logic. If you inspect a hive, it is not uncommon to find the queen in the heart of the box. It's not out of the questions that she could come to the front or back edge, go up, but in this approach, it's hedging that she'll stay resident in the center of the box, and if she moves up, she will likely encounter the queen excluder and therefore not go up into the box above. Now to the benefit of the approach, the worker bees will quickly learn that they can pass into the upper box unabated. And with the loss of restriction, it is more plausible that they will be enticed to go up there and get the task done that you want them to perform. I thought this was brilliant. Really out of the box kind of thinking to solve the problem. And such a smart way to consider it. Is it foolproof? No, the queen might wander up there. But for the most part, this is a really good compromise and a super intelligent ploy to get this to work. Now there's one other thing that comes to mind. This is a touch of a Kevin moment to finish the round table. Think of the way the biology of the bees works. Foragers go out, they forage from sun up to sundown, and in the end they always try to come to the top of the hive and take a siesta. In this case they're wandering up through the hive. They encounter the queen excluder, they wander over to the gap and they go up and they take a rest inside the box up above. When they do that, having been a forager, they tend to bring their footprint pheromone and other scents and things that came with them from being on the outside of the colony. That enticement gives odor of the bees to the wax and the comb up there, 
and that also serves to draw the bees up into the space. In a couple days, that might actually help the situation and draw the bees up in above the queen excluder to get whatever job objective you want done in that box. So give it a day or two. If it doesn't seem to work out immediately, that might actually help the situation. Cool tip. Neat one. Really love learning different things like this that I've never heard before. And kudos to Jim for sharing that with us. Round table number five, I call this one water. Water. There is not a drop to drink this spring in the mid-Atlantic region. There just hasn't been any rain. It's the strangest spring I think I've encountered in years. And I'm imagining that beekeepers... I'm sure if you're anyone that is a plant person and beekeepers tend to be plant people know that they have to go out and water their plants every day in lieu of the fact that there's been no rain. It is not customary in our region for us to have to do that. And yeah, people are sprinkling in their yards and doing all that other stuff. But if I look around, there's no water in the little creek on our property and the big creek is not running. And where it dumps out under the driveway to a puddle, it's a puddle. There's no running water, which is highly unusual this time of year. That's something we might see during the dearth period of the height of summer. And we're not even to summer yet. This is the perfect storm for beekeepers. And it's probably too late, but it's never too late to consider the fact that your bees need water. If you have feeders, top feeders, it's probably not a terrible idea to throw them up on top of the hive and put a little water in them. That way the bees have water right where they are. In addition, Memorial Day just occurred, and that is the traditional area where people have opened up their pools. Pools get chemically indoctrinated in the early season with a lot of chlorine to clean them up, and that creates homing magnets for bees to go to your neighbor's pools. So this is the time where you need to make sure that you refresh and or double check your water sources that are in between your colonies and your neighbor's pool. You should have a couple buckets, whatever it is you use. Make sure you scent the water. Make sure the floaties are right. Make sure there's no mosquitoes or anything else, critters growing in there and take care of your water situation because there is not a drop to drink. I noticed this morning while eating breakfast that the bees have been coming to our planters out on our patio and taking in whatever moisture they can from when Sharon watered the plants. I do feel like anytime you water a soil, something, she just planted a bunch of uh, flowers, they smell the, the dirt and come and pick up the water and the minerals that come from wet soil. And I've just seen anything with water lately. Uh, man, the bees are just going gaga over it. It is super dry out there. It makes me also wonder how the forage is going to be this year. I am going into the hives a little bit later. I'm recording this on a Sunday morning. And I'm going to look to see how they're doing at storing nectar. I know they're bringing in, you know, honey and they're filling our honey boxes. But I'm wondering if the brood nest is wet. Typically, you would trust the rainbow. 
Queen is going to lay through the center of the frame from the bottom up to the top frame, three quarters of the way, left to right, and then you'll have the ring of pollen and you'll have nectar stored up in the corners. I tend to see when it's dry, and in the hives that I've been in the last couple weekends, there hasn't been that much moisture in and amongst the brood frames. That works for bee development and other things going on for function of the colony. So yeah, it's been an interesting year, spring, so far in our region, for example, that it has been extremely dry, and it's worth noting in this roundtable. Make sure you go take care of your water situation, folks. Okay, going to put that away. Pause the recording. I'll be back a little bit later in the show to talk about the local hive report. But right now, I'm heading out to do bees. I set everything up yesterday. I'm going to switch over some 6 over 6s into full-size colonies and add some honey supers to some of my boxes that... Uh, are now to full size and ready to make honey for the summer. So I'll be back in a little bit, tell you how that went. And I'm back for topic number one of this episode before I get into the what happened with the beekeeping thing that I just mentioned a moment ago. I'm just gonna run through a litany of things that I wanted to catch you up on. It's been 111 days since I've recorded. I looked that up, that's how I know. And some might ask, what's been going on over here? I have to warn you that I am slurking down some iced tea that has quite a bit of caffeine. So I'm a little chest. And I'm going to talk fast. But there's a lot to cover, so maybe that's a good thing. So primarily the two things that have been taking up most of my time is a domestic project. I'm cleaning out my garage and the management mentoring program, which required me to take a break. On the home front from the garage we purchased our home from our in-laws and my father-in-law was amazing in the amount of stuff that he had if you needed something from plumbing electrical nuts bolts anything he had it in his garage and when he moved south selling us the house i inherited all of that I would say that there's a fair amount of stuff that he had because he was in the industrial space that I have no use for and I'm not sure what it even does. I have thermocouples and pipe fittings and I finally decided that I am going to go through and call the inventory of all that stuff. And I've literally taken down shelves and uh, cabinets and things to the studs and I'm rebuilding the garage from the ground up. It's been weekends of projects. Um, wood, <laughs> such, you know, wood is so expensive these days to the store that I can't throw it out. So I've gone through and collected it all and organized it. And I, I'm, I'm sure I'm boring you to death with these details, but just be rest assured, it's been a massive job and I'm probably about three quarters of the way through it and it'll take me the rest of the summer to get it finished. That doesn't account for the most time that I've spent over the days, nights, weekends, mornings before work managing the content creation for the management mentoring program. I think I'm to video number 33 and if you think about that, it's like doing three to five podcasts a week. And to produce this podcast is not a trivial undertaking. 
So now you know what's been behind the absence. Given my significant home projects, and there's been a couple other things beyond the garage, regular life and events like, yeah, you know, open the pool and things like that. I'm super busy at work. They just keep piling on the projects. And well, with the management during overhead, something had to give and I haven't been behind the microphone. That's not to say that at periods I have sat down or tried to record something in the car and ultimately just it never felt right so I never put it out. Isn't that strange to think that there's probably about four episodes worth of content recorded somewhere on my phone or you know with different conversations that I've recorded and I just never got a chance to sit down and produce them so apologies for that but now you know what's been keeping me occupied. I am going to continue to build the Manage Mentoring program and if you're not familiar with this let me take a moment and I'll start right there with that topic. ManageMentoring.com for some of you that are new and discovering the show or for those of you who've been listening to me talk about this if you took a beekeeping course back in the spring and along the way you find yourself kind of challenged because of the fact that they didn't cover it in any amount of detail to the point where you feel comfortable that you know what you're doing now that you're up to your elbows and bees then you could come look at the program specifically where we are in the journey is talking to beekeepers about the all-important aspect of the calendar of summer as i record this there's been new research out from dr zachary lamas that confirms something that i've been hinting and talking about more on that in the closing and i just want to make sure that everybody kind of has the right mindset for attacking the varroa mite problem so that your bees can overwinter that's where we are in the program but along the way we talked about how to buy your equipment how to set up your equipment how to do inspections how to uh, read the bees and understand when to add a second box and all of the things that happen but in enough detail that you can go back and look at specific lessons and get a better sense of what you should do so you don't have to struggle. My ask of you, if you're listening to this and you're already a beekeeper, is if you ever hear anybody who wants to start, send them to managementoring.com out in their beginning and just tell them to start in on video number one and walk the series. Um, let's talk about what was supposed to happen today, yesterday. Weather for our area, as you heard earlier, was dry. We just haven't had a lot of rain. I think that's turning the corner. In fact, this week, it was supposed to rain yesterday with thunderstorms. It is physically raining now. As I came inside, I hear thunder upstairs. Or from upstairs, I can hear the, the thunder coming in. And it's supposed to rain all week. So we're having a reversal of fortune on that, which is nice news because... In talking with Bob Kloss, we were hoping that this might extend the foraging season. And I had just, as you heard, put some boxes out. And I'm hoping that if the forage season goes, I can get the bees to continue to build some wax out for me into the early summer. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. It was worth the try. Again, more on that when I get to the local hive report. 
During the course of spring and summer, I did a really good job at swarm management. Now, I didn't touch my top bar hive, other than giving it a lot of space, and I'm positive that my lands hive swarmed because I didn't do anything with it. It's just sitting there. It's been in operation for a couple of years, and I don't do anything to it. Pretty happy with that. I mean, what can you say? I think the form factor of it makes a big difference in survival. And if I let it swarm every spring, it gets a brood break. And I live in the woods. My neighbors are far away. I'm not at risk of them moving into somebody's chimney. And I actually, if you know what we're doing here, want to see our genetics spread. So to lose a swarm here or there is not that big of a deal. I don't get fussy over that. And yes, I've seen some swarms hanging way high up in the trees over our apiary. My Layens Hive box swarmed, I'm positive of that, and so did my Waray box. Which, that one's a little weird because of the fact that I gave them extra space and they opted not to build, they just swamped away. And now there's not a lot of bees in there, but it's so hard for me to tell that what the bees are doing because they maintain in the center of that box and I told you I'd be all over the place. The key to what I wanted to talk about is I have a swarm trap that I never deployed that sits in my breezeway and drum roll please year number six the bees just move in. I don't have to do anything but maintain some extra comb in there because they will choose that box. I put out three swarm traps on my property and all three of them got filled. So who knows if that's the bees from, you know, the, the lands hive, the waray hive, or from neighbor hives. Turns out from something I was at yesterday, I found out that the neighbors across the street had bees. I had no idea, like physically across the street. That makes across the street us down the road and at the other end of my street, four beekeepers all within a mile of each other. One of the other beekeepers, maybe quarter miles of crow flies across the county road, has a commercial organization and stuff. So as we went to a party yesterday, it turned out there were four beekeepers just in a small group of about 20 people. I don't think I can go anywhere these days without having a collection of people and someone in that mix is a beekeeper. It's amazing to me how prevalent it's become. I just found that kind of strange. But coming back to the swarm box, yes, it's pretty amazing that they just keep moving in. In fact, not only did one move in, I moved the colony out of the swarm box and I took it over to Valley Cross and it's growing out to be a full-size colony. Another one moved in later. Now the other one, no good. It had no queen. Now I don't know if it had a virgin, the virgin went out, but when I looked at it over the course of two or three weeks to see if the queen was gonna come back, they never had a brood pattern, and I started to see laying workers with multiple cells that had uh, piles of eggs in them. And they're pretty much doomed. So the preference was to just take them out into the bee yard and shake the frames out and remove their uh, opportunity so that they would at least go somewhere else. 
I always wonder if you send a laying worker into somebody else's hive whether that would cause any turmoil, but I think they would probably get with the program. But what would I know? So the swarm box, yet again, six, maybe this is seven, I'm pretty sure it's six years in a row. And to tell the story, which I've told before six other times, I built this swarm box and the first year they built in this box and it didn't even have frames in it. And then in the future I put frames in it and every year a swarm has moved in. So much so that I really, Bob Kloss and I were having this conversation like, I'm going to take my name off the swarm list. The day of, you know, because people call all the time, I've got a swarm and then it, it becomes almost a pain, especially as busy as I've been this year. Next topic, keep moving, Kevin. EAS 2023, we're heading to Connecticut. We're staying in the dorms because that's where it's at, folks. I love staying in and amongst other beekeepers. We could have went to a hotel or done something else, but last year we had a total blast and we're going to get to do it again. Not a speaker this year. Didn't opt in for it and nobody bothered to ask. Not that they should have, but just it's not on the program. I'm going to be a everyday Joe there and go see what others have to say and enjoy the program from a spectator standpoint. There is one slot reserved to do a live episode on Thursday. And as we get closer to the date, more on that to announce um, in future episodes. And yes, I might as well say it now. I think that I will try to get back to a bi-weekly production of the show because of the fact that the heavy lifting for management mentoring is over. And most of the months coming up, I have one or two videos to produce and I actually have the month of August off. So from that standpoint, I think I might have a little more time to sneak a podcast in here or there. One of the things I'm thinking about is as bad as they sound, I could probably record some commentary back and forth going to work. And if you'll indulge me with the lower quality audio of recording in my car, that's better than no recording at all, I suppose. Now that's EAS, Eastern Apiculture Society 2023. If you've never been, it's an amazing thing to do. It runs up and down the Eastern Seaboard every year. This year it's in Connecticut. Next year it's going to be in Maryland, and that is going to be an amazing program. I've got the kind of inside track on that, and I know the folks that are hosting, and I'm telling you, you do you want to sign up for that one for sure. And Maryland's at a great place because, well, it's about central eastern seaboard, and I'm positive they're going to have one of the best EASs in a long time for that one. If I say EAS, then if I say WAS, then maybe you can extrapolate what that means. If E is Eastern, W is Western. We might go. I was having a conversation with Sharon and our vacation plans for this year, we were going to go somewhere, fell through. Just evaporated, it's not going to happen. And so we were having the conversation about where could we potentially go. And I jokingly said... How'd you like to go to Canada? <laughs> so Etienne Tardif, 
Tardif sent some messages out with the program that they're starting to put together and it looks interesting. And the cool thing about this is it's it's I think a neat and interesting place to go for a summer vacation. Sharon's a beekeeper and she doesn't mind beekeeping, but she doesn't want to do a full week of it. A couple days, fine enough. She could find things to do with WIS and then we could explore the area. We've been having conversations about could we go to different places that we've never seen in this world? Never been to Montana, for example. Never been to New Mexico. Never been to Louisiana. Certainly haven't been to Alberta, Canada, although I've been to other places up by Quebec and such. So I think that's a neat idea. We'll see how that plans out as the conference opens. I think it's in the September time frame, which is perfect. Sharon, drum roll please, just retired from the school job that she had. She was working for our local elementary school and after more than a decade has signed off, done. We started a honey business. She's going to be selling our honey. So one of the things that I had been talking about over the seasons was expanding the operation to more hives so that we could produce more honey so that she could maybe supplement our income with honey sales. And the funny thing she said to me is, as hobbyist beekeepers with a handful of hives not focused on making honey, we had a little cache of honey in the in the till, so to speak. We've sold it all already in the first three quarters of the year. We're running low. So we have to get to the honey harvest and get some more stock in order for her to continue the business. Sunshine Hill Farms, which is our honey production. Yeah. That's an exciting thing for us and how to tie that back is that opens September for going on vacation. Something that of course she was in the middle of her school year every year come that time frame and it was never an option. Now that she's home I can take some time off from work and off we go. That's pretty exciting to me. Next topic. <laughs> My eye situation. One word encapsulates it. Amazing. I have been blessed with the ultimate outcome that my sight has been restored to near full function in the eye that had a tumor. My surgery and the subsequent healing that was required resolved the damage done to the eye from the tumor and they were able to laser the tumor and arrest it from doing any further tissue damage when they performed the corrective procedure. It will be a watch for years to come, but I have to say that, well, at the beginning of the journey, reflecting on it, I was counseled that there was no guarantees in the outcome and that the best we could do is wish for a good result. Saying it again, I feel truly blessed. The outcome was just astonishing. A best case scenario, restoration of 2020 vision in the left eye and in a general sense it's back to the same function it was prior to the onset of the tumor symptoms. I am obviously grateful for the medical staff at Will's Eye who did an amazing job at correcting the horrible situation I was in. 
And, you know, one of the funny things is, from a beekeeping standpoint, I've struggled this spring into summer in seeing things in the hive because my glasses are messed up. I was told by the surgeon that I needed to wait for a period of time for my eye to heal. But one of the things that's crystal clear is the prescription that I have in my glasses, especially for the left eye, is totally messed up. So much so that it, it does give me headaches and so on. But now that the, high, the eye is fully healed, I could go, and I'm going to schedule it this week, to my regular eye doctor and get a new prescription that should sort things out. I have, what do they call them? It's not bifocals, whatever the type of modern lens is that graduates from top to bottom. If I lift my head up and look through the very bottom of my current glasses, the left eye is super sharp. But looking through the center area where it's designed, it's not there. <laughs> and it's kind of messing with my head. So I really need to get that job done to get my glasses updated and then... I'm pretty sure I'll be able to see everything even better. So oh, I, I just can't tell you how relieved I am that of the, you know, I spent many nights and I think that came through in some of the shows that I recorded wondering if that was the end of eyesight as I knew it. And the fact that it's back to the point where I can read even the small type. And if you weren't familiar with the situation, the tumor on the bottom of my eye created an issue in the back where the light is received coming in through the front of the eye and I couldn't read a license plate on the car in front of us driving down the street I couldn't read the word stop or the street signs with the left eye that's how bad the vision was and to have it completely back to normal is again nothing short of a miracle it's amazing so the last thing in this run of topics I wanted to throw in the pile was about queen rearing this year just haven't gotten to it uh, the second thing that suffered the most beyond recording podcasts was the perspective of queen rearing i had a discussion with bob who's got a couple things going on in his own right and we just decided to call it off we talked about maybe making a last ditch effort here in june but at some point we decided to uh not go there this year and I have to be honest, I miss it. Uh, I, I really did enjoy that. And one of the things that I think I'm going to learn from this change in plans is how valuable queens are. And I wonder how our overwintering will be for, you know, the the fact that we're not going to install new queens at any point this year. But as I roll into the local hive report, there are 17 hives in operation, and it, almost every one of them either made their own, as you'll hear me talk about, or have our queens. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Uh, on a whole, it's been an interesting window since March 6th and the last recording. Yeah, uh, typical thing around the England household. It's just every day something going on, and... You plan your blocks of work and you work through your blocks of time and uh, everything's planned out for the next two weeks as to what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it, when I'm going to do it. And that's just the life we live. 
I just hope that somewhere along the line I can hop in our pool and go on a vacation here and there and go get a little ice cream or all those other things that you have to build into life, folks. You have to do it. Okay, we're on the back end of the episode. It's time to go into the local hive report. Just a quick tally of what's going on. It's an interesting mix, as usual, in my apiary. The home yard here, which sits out behind our garage, has 12 pads, and there's beehives on every single one of them. Most of them, at this point, are double-deep 10-frame hives with honey supers over top of them. Not too exciting, but that's kind of unusual for me, because a lot of times when we're doing queen-rearing, making splits, I'm running 6-frame polystyrene hives, in double or triple stacks and this year I've kind of pulled all of those out. I don't have but one or two of them in operation. Uh, let me go through the quick inventory of stuff. So what I did as I mentioned earlier in the episode was take the 6 over 6 or 6 over 6 over 6 polystyrene nucleus boxes that I have and I moved them into two 10 frame, double deep, conventional wooden Langstroth hives. And then put two honey supers or one over top of them. Some had drawn foundations, some had plain, brand new foundation and frames that I built. One thing that occurred this year is Sharon and I went through, as I mentioned earlier, and built probably 50 new frames on the season and installed new wax foundation in all of them in effort to continue to cycle in new comb to our apiary and also put in a bunch of I still have probably about 30 left Kelly F frames which are the foundationless frames I smatter them in and if you open our boxes and look down you'll see that they say BB for better B that's where we bought our frame stock. And F6, 23, or slash 23, which means they were installed in June of 23. I did notice in looking at some of my boxes that I have a handful of frames from 2019. Maybe three or four of them in the whole operation. Almost everything that we have is from 2020, 2021, and 2022. I think next year I will start culling anything that has a 19 on it. And if it's not evident, I've become a devotee, if that's the right word, of new comb is so beneficial to your bees, along with new queens through the seasons. One of the reasons we got away from this season, having more nucleus style colony setups was the fact that we want to make some more honey. Typically we have five or six boxes dedicated to the honey production. This year I have 12 of them. So we have 12 hives. There's a top bar hive which has honey supers on it. I know that sounds strange but I've made a custom Langstroth style conventional Kenyan top bar that accepts mediums over top of it and they make honey for me every year. The one hive that's always been a disappointment is the all medium hive on pad number five. For the life of me, I don't get this hive. For three seasons, it's had 
a plethora of boxes and large numbers of bees, but it doesn't make that much honey. And I was thinking about this the other day, is why is the dynamic of that hive not making honey? And it was requeened at one point through to try and switch up its fortune. I don't know what the medium boxes have to do with that. Maybe it's just the fact that it's observational and it has nothing to do with medium boxes, but it never makes any honey and I'm strange. Some of my other boxes make two, three uh, supers easily. This one just kind of dawdles along. The entrance is at the top of this hive and for the life of me, every season I go through close the top entrance to try and force them to go to the bottom and they go to the bottom and then somewhere along the line I tear the tape off because I want them to be able to dry the honey out and they switch to the top and they don't seem to make a lot of honey and I don't know if that has anything to do with the dynamic of it. The one hive that faltered this year was the Russian hive on the scale sitting on pad number eight. These are the Russian bees that I collected from a swarm from a fellow beekeeper who started with Russians. And this hive dwindled and dwindled and dwindled to the point where I thought it was not going to make it. It came out of winter as a dink. And I was watching what happened and they ended up requeening themselves. And now through the season, they're not making a lot of honey, but they're coming back to a full-blown colony. The one thing that I've noticed, temperament-wise, wanted to talk about this season is one of these hives, and I think it might be the all-medium or one of the boxes sitting behind it, seems to be a little feisty. Not to the point where I can't walk around in the apiary in a t-shirt, but when I open it up, I notice that the bees are buzzing my veil more frequently from one of those hives. Now the problem is, every time I've been doing my inspections lately, I've opened a bunch of hives, and maybe it's just the fact that I've been in tearing things apart that they're doing that but I think it's the one on pad number nine to the contrary going back to the state meeting that we had for the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association we worked bees during the rain <laughs> we left the meeting and had an open session at the Valley Crest mentoring yards where I have three hives and it was raining the whole time we were there and the bees were as kind and docile and happy as could be, even though we had them open for probably an hour as we went through and, you know, inspected all the frames and checked on them. They're amazing, those bees, in gentleness. Certainly ones that, if they're prolific this summer, I want to make sure that we graft from them next year, no doubt. As I look through the apiary, uh, there's 12 in the main yard, plus the ware sitting out front. There's three in Valley Crest, and half one sitting over next to the old location. I put a swarm box out, and they moved in, and now it's a double deep, no, triple deep six frame. Six over six over six, and you know, I was thinking about this. If you don't have experience over polystyrene hives, they're fun to play with, especially the six frame ones. And I had debated whether I was going to take that box and move it into conventional woodenware or would I just keep building the stack. I don't think I've ever done that except for once. 
it's 6 over 6 over 6, so it's 18. And if I moved it into a regular hive, I would just supplement it with two frames and then put a honey super over it to give them room to grow. I have, because I just took them all down, extra six frame boxes and I'm thinking I'm going to make a tower hive out of it. I have 12 frames and two extra boxes the next weekend, 4th of July weekend, I think I'm going to put them up there. I'm going to see how tall they'll build in a pyramid like that. It does echo what I see in the Waray Hive because the Waray Hive are small boxes stacked right straight up like a chimney. And I'd be interested to see if they build a massive colony and then overwinter that way. I've overwintered in those polystyrene boxes, but usually what happens is I put a new colony in there sometime after the summer solstice. And then in the spring, like this year, I moved them into full-size equipment. I've never left them for the long run in that small form factor. And this year, I think I'm going to experiment. I'm going to take two of the six frames that I just pulled off, put frames in them, and they'll be drawn comb, not foundation, and put them on those boxes and see if I can overwinter the thing is five six-frame boxes. That, that's interesting to me. So local hive report, everything looks great. If I think about treatment-free, the hives came out of winter looking great. There was no sign of disease. There was no sign of varroa mite infestations and challenges. I was quick in the beginning. I think I probably talked about this back in March to split everything so it didn't swarm away because I wanted to maintain the stock. And one of the things that I noticed in recent inspections is the drones are starting to dwindle, but all spring long, all of these colonies had a massive amount of drones. As I think about that as a dynamic, that's a watch. Because if there's drones, there's mites. Now, you would think that you'd see hygiene and my, my brood looks fine. I don't see holes in the brood and so on. And I don't see any sick bees, bad larvae, no deformed wing virus. They just look like healthy every day. We're, we're in the height of the season. We love life bees so far. It'll be interesting to watch how they progress. And so one of the things that happened last year was in going treatment free with the stock that we've cultivated over years, we wanted to see whether or not we started to see any signs of varroa mite, you know, parasitic mite syndrome or those things that I just rattled off, bad brood patterns, um, deformed wing virus, none of it. But if the bees made it, eked their way through winter, then perhaps you'd start to see some signs of collapse in the spring. You'd see European fowl brood or signs of paralyzed bees crawling out in front. Nope, none of that. So season number two, halfway through of treatment free with the stock that we've been cultivating so far so good and we'll see where it takes us 
But with all those drones lives the possibility that they reared a lot of mites and yeah, it'll be an interesting summer and fall to see how things go. Especially since I'm not going to refresh the queens with new queens or do brood breaks or any of that stuff. As I look in there, everything looks on the up and up. And one of the things I'm going to commit to, Bob Kloss and I were talking about this the other day too. When I drove home from work and I gave Bob a call and we just talked for an hour about different things. July 4th is the weekend to go monitor all the hives. If there's one thing that all this busy period has just chucked out the window is the ability to go through. Now the funny thing is I have all my honey supers on. I'm going to go in and assess the honey supers and I'm going to pull them off and I'm going to go through and monitor all the bees because there's this just strange thing of going through all the work of cultivating bees that potentially could help you get to more treatment-free lifestyle, yet you don't know how many mites are in there. That's kind of like backwards. So hear me now. This is why I say this out loud on the program. I will monitor and hopefully in one of the next episodes I will tell you how my mite loads looked and what's going on with that. I don't know how many hives I'll get to. I say this now with all the bravado that I can have, but sometimes, and imagine 12 hives going through them all by myself, 90 degrees if it's that day or rain coming or who knows what. Um, I reserve the right to do the best that I can and tell you how it turned out. So local hive report, everything's going great. I've been out visiting a couple beekeepers. I didn't mention that. In the management mentoring program, a couple people called and had some challenges. Their hive swarmed or their bees weren't doing what they expected or they were uncertain. And so instead of working my bees, I've run out to various places around our area to visit a couple beekeepers and just, you know, give them a look-see. It is the season now, too, I should say, that we're going to go out and visit our mentees in the program just to check them. So that's another part of the management mentoring program is that not only do we coach you through the year, but every once in a while we bop in to make sure that you're on the up and up, that you're doing okay and we can stand next to you and you can ask us any questions. I wanted to say, um, I'm off on a tangent here, but I've seen a lot of folks from Nebraska and a lot of folks from Maryland join in the program because I have connections there with different people and I'm excited to see that the platform has, um, you know, been adopted by regional areas. And I'm hoping that that, if there's anything about the instruction that doesn't work, then that will emerge. And I suppose I could consider this as the end of the local hub report. So I'll say check. And I'll head to closing comments. And I did want to talk about that dynamic. When we think about Nebraska, because I went out and did a talk out there and met a lot of folks and really enjoyed their program and my secondary adopted friends from Maryland, they promoted the program and the program unfortunately suffered a catastrophic problem. I signed up for Constant Contact, which is an email com campaign tool 
to be able to manage things and send messaging. Erroneously, and this is growing pains in the program, I've been sending constant emails out through it, just keeping people apprised that videos are posted and online meetings or whatever, and have been crickets. Now, the weird thing is, in our local club, we just don't have people coming to meetings, and we can't seem to figure that out. Why? What's going on with that? And the same thing was exhibiting in the Manage Mentoring Program. Well, so it turns out, I've learned, that Gmail, the Gmail that you know and love if you're a Gmail user, has been blocking all my emails. <laughs> and 60% of the people subscribed into the program use Gmail email addresses, and they have not been receiving the emails all spring long. And I just figured this out. And so I'm on the quest to solve why my constant contact is being blocked. And there's two technologies, one called SPF, one called DKIM, which are mail protocols that allow one sender to be trusted by the other and not look like spam. And if you're listening to this and you're part of the management mentoring program and you haven't been receiving emails, Sorry, but I've been sending them every week and they're not getting through. So when I fix this and it lights back up, everybody will finally realize that there actually was a program going on all along and I'll have to explain what happened. Which means to me that in a roundabout way, those people who are self-sufficient and have been looking at the program and following the videos because they understood the lay of the land have been kind of doing it on their own. And it's funny because I say in every video that's posted, if you have any comments, you can send an email. And every once in a while, somebody does. And I communicate with them not knowing that they weren't receiving other emails. They just decided they needed to reach out. NetNet, if you're part of a beekeepers association, whether it's state or local, and I, I work in IT, I'm a technology guy. <laughs> Every once in a while, something just goes horribly wrong and you, you can't help but just shake your head and say, well, I guess that's just the way the world works. And maybe next year when we start in the November, December timeframe from scratch, we'll have all these kinks worked out and we'll be able to administer the program in its full glory with everybody receiving all the messaging and so on. And the world will be right as rain. I have run out of things to say other than I've been away a while. Sorry about that. Happy to be back. I can't promise you I will post with any regularity, at least for the remainder of the year as we go through, but I will do my best to uh, put some programs out and just say, Hey, every once in a while, I missed uh, talking to everyone. And with that being said, the funny thing is, <laughs> two episodes this week two as soon as i unplug the cord here i'm going to plug it back in and i'm going to record something and hear me when i say this i've had this one of the reasons i'm back here today is i've had something on my mind that i had to get out had to and so i'm going to record a special that's the next episode my watch dings it's telling me it's time to stand. Isn't that nice of Apple to take care of me? It concurs. I'm supposed to close this down. 
I am going to record something about different topics related to some of what I've hinted on in this episode. A concept of switchover, a concept of the perfect storm, and a concept of, finally, the research is there to tell you that Varroa mites and drones are linked and we've been missing it all along and I think in my catalog as I will say in the open because I already prepped the notes for this this might turn out to be one of the most important things I've recorded for posterity and we will see I've been harboring this notion in the background of how we have it all wrong and I've hinted at it in different shows along the years as I've been studying the topic personally. In fact, episode 203, I called it out in one of the roundtables. I didn't go into detail because I kind of kept it close to the vest, but this next episode, I am going to lay it all out there and you'll hear what, what I think in one big Kevin moment about our management practices when it comes to Varroa mites and we're missing it. And I'm hoping that what I say will be the beginning of beekeepers waking up to a, an alternative way to think about the world of Varroa mites. And that's where I think I'll leave it. I hope you take the time after this to go listen to that episode. And I would love, because I'm going to talk about the art of the possible, to hear your feedback, what you thought of that, if you get the chance. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well.